all for coming. Um, my name is Peter Leary. I'm a junior research fellow here at the UCL Institute for Advanced Studies. I work on uh, the history of borders and border crossing in the 20th century. And I'm just going to say a few words um, before we begin. Firstly, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Institute of Advanced Studies or the IAS, we are a research-based community of scholars from across UCL, as well as visiting fellows and research collaborators from the UK and internationally. The IAS is committed to critical thinking, both within and across conventional disciplinary and institutional boundaries. And one of our aims that is, I think, particularly pertinent to this evening is to identify and address urgent ethical and intellectual challenges that face us today and to confront our responsibility as citizens of an increasingly contracting and interconnected world. Each year the IAS identifies specific themes for the organisation of research-led events and encounters. And our two themes uh, this year are vulnerability and lies. And so tonight's panel discussion on vulnerability and visibility is the first of a series of seminars and events that Alison Deutsch, who's chairing the panel tonight, and I are, or are going to be organising relating to that theme or to the, to, to the idea or experience of vulnerability. Now, most of these events will be taking place in the new year. Um, and I will say a little bit about those in a moment. But we decided to go ahead with this um, discussion now in response to uh, the fact that some of the issues that we'll hopefully be talking about have received um, enormous prominence in the, in the wake of the exposure of the actions of Harvey Weinstein, the success of the Me Too campaign, and its ongoing reverberations across politics, the arts, the media, and beyond. So we thought it was appropriate and it was the right thing to do to try to organize something quickly, and the, the great response we've had in the run-up to, to tonight and the, the, the attendance we have, I think, is a real vindication of the importance of that uh, and, and of that decision. So I won't say any more about this evening's event. I'll leave that to Alison and our speakers. But I do want to extend um, briefly an invitation to you to participate in the upcoming series of seminars and events, which we are hoping will provide a forum for us to think about the vulnerability theme across, uh, from a range of disciplinary perspectives and contexts. Give you a very quick flavour. We will begin on Wednesday, the 17th of January at 5 pm in this room with Stephen Connor, who is Professor of English at the University of Cambridge, and who will be giving a talk entitled Stupid Shame, The Shaming of the Stupid and the Stupidity of Shaming. Um, to get, just very quickly, across the, 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 the next two terms, we're going to be um, addressing things including vulnerability and migration vulnerability and uncertainty in relation to the impact of climate change, and vulnerability um, and arts practice. One final um, example, because I particularly like the title, in, in, later in the term, Andrew Gardner from, the, from Archaeology here at UCL will be speaking about vulnerability and post-imperial identities from Brexit to ancient Rome and back. So it really is going to be a wide-ranging and exciting whistle-stop excursion across time and space, as well as uh, disciplinary and other boundaries, um, as well as we hope as a, a, a stimulating and intellectual, intellectually fruitful exploration of the meanings, uses and experiences of vulnerability and their impacts. So I hope some of you will be able to join us for some or all of those events. Um, if you are interested, you can follow the and like the IAS on Facebook as 
many of you have done and you can also go onto our website where the events will be advertised and you can sign up for a regular newsletter there where, we, where you will receive information. Um, the one final sort of thing I should say is that we are recording tonight, many of you will know that, um, that, that we had a lot of interest and a number of people were unable to, to attend because uh, the, ve the, the venue had reached its capacity so we, it is very important that we record it tonight so if I ask people to, to not sort of chat or, or, or make noise through the proceedings um, and, and, and if you ask questions to, to speak clearly and so on. So thank you all again for coming and I will um, hand back to Alison. Thank you. Thank you. Can you hear me? I'm Alison Deutsch. I'm, like Peter said, also a junior research fellow here in the IAS. I'm an art historian by training. Um, I'd like to reiterate just how really moving it is to see so many of you here in this room to discuss these issues and to learn about the work that's being done by our panelists to address cultures of sexual harassment. In planning this event, we decided to think through current debates about sexual harassment using the two terms vulnerability and visibility and to ask what we can learn about cultures of power and exploitation through these terms. We wanted to consider what vulnerability and visibility mean in various contexts, the complex connections that they have to one another as a way into debates about misogyny more broadly. What is the relationship between vulnerability and visibility online, for example, where visibility operates differently and where users are vulnerable in specific ways? How are the concepts of vulnerability and visibility understood and lived in schools and universities, and how are they defined and managed by the law? Experiences of sexual misconduct are always differentiated and interact with other forms of discrimination, including racism. How, then, might we use vulnerability and visibility as concepts that pull together thinking across disciplines and professions, expanding our knowledge and furthering our forms of resistance? So it's my pleasure now to hand over to tonight's experts, who I will introduce. They've all been asked to speak for a maximum of 10 minutes about their work, after which point we'll open up the panel so that the panelists can address one another, and then we'll open it out into the audience, uh, into the audience, after which point we will have a more formal conversation in the back of the room over wine and snacks. So it's my pleasure to introduce our first panelist, Dr. Tiffany Page, who's a lecturer in the Department of Sociology at the University of Cambridge. Her research interests include the areas and intersections of vulnerability, gender inequalities, and institutional violence. In particular, she's working on understanding vulnerability as an approach to particular epistemological, methodological, and pedagogical concerns. Tiffany has published on what a vulnerability methodology might entail, how as researchers we might write vulnerably. She's the co-founder of the 1752 Group, a research and lobby organization working to end student-to-staff sexual misconduct in higher education. And in that capacity, she's also involved in a number of collaborative research and consulting projects with various institutions and sector bodies. Please join me in welcoming Tiffany. for having me. Can you hear me at the back there? Cool. Um, so, as I said, my name's Tiffany Page. I'm a lecturer um, in the Department of Sociology at the University of Cambridge, and I'm also co-founder of the 1752 Group. So we're a research and lobby organisation, and we're tasked with addressing and ending staff-to-student sexual misconduct 
in higher education in the UK. So just a little bit of background on that, the 1752 group uses the term sexual misconduct to describe forms of power enacted by staff in their relations with students, but this can also occur in relations between staff members in higher education. And we do so to put the emphasis on the responsibility of staff for their conduct. So we think sexual misconduct can include sexual harassment, sexual assault, grooming, coercion, bullying, sexual invitations and comments, demands, non-verbal communication, the creation of atmospheres of discomfort where you don't want to be in the same room as the person but you can't complain about it, and promised resources in exchange for sexual access. So we think sexual harassment captures only some of the possible abuses of power that may occur in a higher education institution. And sexual misconduct impacts students of all gender identities and sexualities. So in partnership with the National Union of Students, we've just launched on Friday the first ever national student survey on staff sexual misconduct. It's open to students of all gender identities. It's open to all students who are currently enrolled in UK higher education institutions and any former students who have experienced sexual misconduct. And you can access it through the 1752 website, 1752.com, or from the NUS website. And it's open till the 15th of December. And we're hoping to report back on that in early spring. So we formed in 2016 out of the actions of a group of PhD students who in 2012 alerted our university to cases of staff sexual misconduct. And it took four years of making formal complaints and activism on our part, along with several staff, and the actions of many students that came before us and tried to speak out for senior management to begin to implement institutional-wide change. I refer to this because I think the role of time within discussions of vulnerability and visibility is crucial. While there are now conversations occurring nationally regarding sexual violence and sexual harassment, it's important to recognise the work of those who have previously have and continue to work in this area. From survivors and support organisations such as Rape Crisis, Imkan, Southall Black Sisters, um, to name three, um, to generations of activists and activist groups. It's important to acknowledge how these histories can be erased and also altered in the media attention that we see right now. So there's three areas I want to touch on briefly tonight. The first is the ways in which simultaneous hypervisibility and invisibility of particular groups occurs. Second is the relation that vulnerability has to endurance as a requirement of existence. And third, very briefly, is the uh, visibility of violence inflicted by institutions in response to reports of sexual violence and sexual misconduct. So while vulnerability involves notions of wounding and injury, and because of this, it is in some sense a universal condition of living beings, vulnerability is unevenly lived with. It is a condition or experience that is differentially distributed across particular bodies where these differences matter to both ethics and politics. So I think this includes considering the social mechanisms that might alter the visibility of particular experiences. And for this discussion, I'm thinking with the notion of visibility through the work of Lee Bassel and Kugo Emadjulu and their excellent book that I keep using again and again, Minority Woman and Austerity, and it's just come out. 
And they frame questions of what is visible within a paradox of recognition. The ways in which particular individuals, communities and groups are made to become are simultaneously hypervisible and invisible. For example, we see how sexual harassment remains a private invisible problem when it impacts the working class. The HuffPost recently featured an article written on the exhausting experiences of sexual harassment faced by hotel cleaning and service staff in their daily work. And we know that those jobs are often done by women of colour. We can see the hypervisibility of the scrutiny of MP Diane Abbott's every interview and actions during the election last year, including when she was ill and needed time off, and how this simulta exists simultaneously with the invisibility of the sexual harassment, misogyny and racism she faced during the campaign. Even when the report by Amnesty was released, the Abbott showed Abbott received 45% of all abusive tweets sent to female MPs in the six-week run-up to the election campaign. It did not spark a national conversation among white people about misogynoir, the misogyny and racism faced by black women. And there are temporalities to this because this is not a new phenomenon. The report did not say anything that black women do not already know and live with. And at the time Abbott said, and I quote, it's the volume of it that makes it so debilitating, so corrosive and so upsetting. And I want to pick up on this notion of debility and its particular connection to tiredness and exhaustion and innovation, which refers to a feeling of being drained of energy. Well, how do you make a report or a complaint about a feeling? What happens when this violence becomes an everyday experience a condition of doing your job. And I think as scholars such as Elizabeth Povinelli, Lauren Ballant, and Basil and Emma Judy point out, the very ordinariness of these experiences serves to, in Basil and Emma Judy's words, help to privatise the public issue of a person's persistent precarity. So it privatises the public issue of a person's persistent precarity. Because it's not exceptional, it faced, fails to be registered at the level where any change could occur. And I suggest this, mean, this becomes one means in which people become separated from their vulnerability as a state or condition that needs supported action in order to be alleviated or eliminated. Instead, vulnerability becomes, for some people, something that has to be lived with. In other words, we become stripped of this claim to vulnerability. So Weinstein and Westminster are spectacular splash points that lead to particular conversations. And the instigation of the hashtag MeToo created a national conversation. But like Basil and Emma Julie caution, we have to pay attention to the ahistorical nature of these times and movements. The history of movements and the public uptake of another person's vulnerability is important. How do we think about the temporalities of national conversations? of how they emerge and how they inevitably disappear, and the lived experiences of those who are, may never feature. How do these shifts in national conversations also change the conversation? Now, as many of you may be aware, the hashtag MeToo was started by a black woman, Tarana Burke. And Burke is um, the program director for Girls for Gender Equity, which is based in Brooklyn, New York. And she created what she refers to as a movement, not a campaign. And she did so from a deeply personal experience that comes from being a survivor, 
and it was meant to enable a form of communication between survivors. This came from a particular time where she wasn't able to listen to and hold on to the pain of another person and say what she wanted to say in acknowledging the existence of that other person. That I might know too much of your pain for me to be able to hold it because me too. It wasn't done as a metrics of vulnerability to, assess to, the, to attest to the sheer numbers of me too, me too, me too. It was done as a form of vulnerable interpersonal communication from one individual to another. And its origins occupy a different spatio-temporality of where the invisibility of sexual violence is acknowledged by those who could always see it. And I suggest there's a difference when violence is known and lived with and the means in which people live with its knowability when it's centred through the lives of survivors. And when these movements become campaigns in the hypervisibility of sexual violence, survivors risk, ironically, becoming invisible. So this leads me to the second area I wanted to raise. How does vulnerability circulate as a form of endurance? So in general terms, endurance is a measure of a person's stamina or persistence but it can also be the ability to bear suffering. So therefore, vulnerability as a conditional state requires endurance simply to maintain a life, to, fig to figure ways to alleviate social, socio-economic and political conditions of precarity. So if, as Elizabeth Povinelli suggests, enduring isn't a singularity, then we need to consider that every experience that involves enduring something will have multiple layers. It is never only just about surviving sexual misconduct or sexual violence or gender-based oppression. In the context of our work in the 1752 group, to enter into the temporal spaces of sexual misconduct within a university setting is to enter into the multiple configurations of endurance that can't be separated from its social antonym, which is exhaustion. The simultaneous endurance and resulting exhaustion might include the temporal spaces that the experience of sexual violence occupies within a life, whether this turns out to be moments, months, or years. It might include the holding of, holding of that violence in ways that means it is never communicated, thank you, outside of the body where that violence was inflicted. And it might include the institutional response and what it requires from an individual both in what is demanded in order for the institution to act and in the violence of inaction, of waiting for a response. It might also involve waiting for another kind of body to come along who has experienced something similar but is listened to, like we've seen in the case of Hollywood. So in summing up, what does this do and what does this take from us? How do we need to think about the intertwined nature of vulnerability and endurance, where the process of enduring is a simultaneous wearing out and wearing down of bodies? What does vulnerability demand of us to endure, but also ethically in the demand to respond to the vulnerability of others? And so finally, and connected to this, how do we address these institutional responses that inflict violence in new ways? In the case of staff sexual misconduct in universities, visibility does not in itself ease vulnerability. Instead, it raises new conditions that have to be endured, from reporting to long drawn out investigation processes. 
So what do we do when the very institution that is asking you for your narrative is the one that caused the violence? Where does vulnerability to violence end? Thank you. Our next panelist is Shaista Aziz, who's a freelance journalist, broadcaster, and writer specializing in identity, race, gender, and Muslim women. Her work has appeared in The Guardian, Globe and Mail, The New York Times, the BBC, and The Huffington Post. She founded the Everyday Bigotry Project, which seeks to disrupt narratives around race, Islamophobia, and bigotry. She's a former Oxfam and MSF aid worker, and has spent more than 15 years working across the Middle East, East and West Africa, and across Pakistan with marginalized women impacted by conflict and emergencies. She's a member of the Fabian Women's Network Executive Committee, and finally, she's the co-founder of Intersectional Feminist Foreign Policy, which seeks, to, which seeks to influence the creation of an ethical feminist foreign policy that does no further harm to women and girls, and that brings to the table the voices, lived experiences, and expertise of women who've otherwise been excluded from policy discussions based on their intersectional identities. Welcome, Taisa. Hi, everyone. Great to be here. Um, I've done something to my neck, so I apologize if I don't um, if I look a bit like I'm on a robot, OK? Um, so just to pick up from Tiffany's um, brilliant points, um, I just wanted to start with Me Too as a hashtag and as a, I think it's a moment. I think it needs to um, transition to a movement myself. But as Tiffany's already explained, um, the actual hashtag was created or rather the, the tag was created by an African-American woman by the, the name of Tarana Burke. She created it 10 years ago, so that was in 2007, as, as we've already heard. It was um, a grassroots campaign to reach sexual assault survivors in underprivileged communities. And a direct quote from her is, it was a catchphrase to show solidarity with survivors of sexual abuse and especially um, solidarity with women of colour. Now, I wanted to start from this point because as a journalist and as a writer, I'm very aware of how and when people are allowed to be heard, particularly women. Uh, we are not equal as women, that's a starting point. Um, I think feminism, particularly right now, is at a very exciting stage. Um, at the same time, I think uh, the global feminist movement is busy whitewashing a lot of realities that women face. Um, so this is a starting point of the, the, what I want to say tonight. So moving on from there, Jane Fonda, um, I think this was about a month ago, she actually went on record to say that the reason why Me Too has gained traction is because these narratives that are gaining the traction are from white women, privileged women, and women who have agency, well, all women have agency, just to be clear, but women in particular who can gain access to the media headlines. So she went on record to say that, and I think it's very important for her to say that. So as I said, vulnerability is a natural um, aspect of being a woman with intersectional identities. However, it's also a constructive, constructed um, aspect of women's identities, because as I said, 
um, if you are a woman of colour, if you are disabled, if you are working class, if you are trans, a trans woman, I believe very strongly that in many spheres of your life, your agency is removed by everybody else around you, even if you have agency yourself. Um, I do a lot of work around disrupting narratives around race and bigotry. Um, obviously, I don't do it by myself, just to be very clear. But this year in particular, I've spent a lot of time travelling across the country, across the UK, and I've been speaking to a lot of women about hate crime. So um, I set up a project called the Everyday Bigotry Project, which, if I'm going to be really honest, is one woman and a laptop. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, right? But you'd be surprised how powerful one woman and a laptop is, genuinely, right? So I've spent a lot of time travelling around the country, listening to women who are vulnerable because of the political context that they live in which frankly is going downhill every day. It's the context that all of us live in. And the stories that have been coming out have been extremely eye-opening, even for someone like me, a woman, a visible woman, a hyper-visible woman, a Muslim woman. Um, and one of the things that struck me more than anything is that the space for women to be heard, particularly women with intersectional identities, is shrinking every single day. And it's actually being shrunk by the white mainstream feminist movement, it has to be said, categorically, and by everybody else. And one example I wanted to give you is, um, I live in Oxford, and in my home city of Oxford, I um, got talking to women about hate crime. I myself have been subjected to four hate crimes reported to the police each time. Um, each time a hate crime has happened to me, it's been carried out by a man, a white man. And I've absolutely, I was going to say, use the word fundamental, but I thought perhaps I shouldn't use that word, given my appearance. Um, but um, I absolutely 100% believe that the uh, violence that has been shown towards me is because of misogyny. It's because I'm a visible Muslim woman, and it's because I am visible. And to these men who have um, first subjected me to racialized verbal language, and then in one case, I just go through it very quickly. In one case, um, I was standing at a bus stop not that far from my house, nice part of Oxford, and I just was returning from Prague from a work meeting. I had my little wheelie suitcase with me, and an older white man standing at the bus stop decided to start racially abusing me using very disgusting language. And then he came towards me and tried to punch me. I don't know this man, never met this man in my life. I decided to wheel my suitcase in between me and him as a, as a buffer, right? And actually, I was quite surprised by my own internalised reaction to this violence. And my internalised reaction to this violence was to, to actually become very, very quiet. Now, people who know me know I'm not very quiet. Um, and I just spent maybe two or three weeks not wanting to talk to anyone, not wanting to really be visible and be on the streets, right? Uh, as I said, there's been a consecutive number of hate crimes that have occurred uh, directed towards me, but my my stories are very, very, uh, they pale into insignificance compared to a lot of the women that I've met. And as I said, I think what's going on here is if you are hyper-visible as a, as a woman, like I said, I mentioned some of the most visible identities, particularly for trans women, um, I think what's going on is there is now a complete normalisation of hate in ways that we have not seen. And as Tiffany said as well, what happens is women who are hyper-visible become invisible. We become homogenized by the, those who want to carry out the hate and violence towards us. But at the same time, we're visible, which is why this violence is being carried out towards us. And um, 
the connection I wanted to make in terms of the international work I'm doing is that last year I was working with MSF in Borno State, Northeast Nigeria. In Northeast, Northeast Nigeria, there's an insurgency going on with Boko Haram, I'm sure we all know what they're up to, and the Nigerian military that's not really known for its brilliant human rights record as well. It's a very um, dangerous and volatile situation. And in the mix of, of course, as always, with young girls and women. And these young girls and women that I met, um, some of them were 12 years old, 13 years old, they'd been forced to give birth, they were married, I mean this is a euphemism for rape, um, they've usually been snatched, taken away from their villages, from their homes, and they end up being married and having children. So I spent a lot of time interviewing these girls and these women and one thing um, that kept coming up over and over again was that even though they survived and they were safe, so to speak, their vulnerability as survivors um, made them even more of a target for violence. So the violence never stops. So in the case, in the case I'm referring to, um, I met older women, and older women in a way, because their sexuality becomes um, lost, right, over a period of time, they are no longer necessarily seen as sexualized. Um, their bodies are no longer seen as sexualized. <coughs> So they are usually given more access, they're allowed to travel by themselves and move around by themselves. Now one of the older women that I met, she told me, um, I said to her, you know, why do you ever leave this camp? So in the context of these camps, what's happened is the Nigerian military has emptied out lots of uh, towns and villages and uh, people have become displaced, they've gone to the capital, Borno State and you don't see men, there are no men there, there are small boys and that's it, older men perhaps, that's it. And so women are left to defend themselves, literally they have to fend for themselves. So I was speaking to the women, asking them, you know, what do you do? How do you go and get food? Where do you go? And one woman um, started uh, putting her hands up in the air and another woman started patting her quite aggressively and I said, what's going on? And they said, we don't leave the camps because men come with guns and they touch us. And when they touch us, they do things that we don't want to ha happen to us. So as I said, vulnerability in these contexts just continues. It, it goes on and on and on, and it, it sort of morphs into different ways. But the reason why I was talking about Borno State, and I'm going to make a connection to hate crime and to what's going on here, obviously I'm not suggesting it's the same as Boko Haram in the Nigerian military, just to be very clear. But something happened to me recently that kind of threw me, and that was that I was um, out and about getting on with my life, and um, I was in London for work. I was driving back to Oxford quite late. I decided to get a taxi home when I got to Oxford, and a young taxi driver happened to be of Pakistani heritage, got talking to me, nice guy, we had a chat, and then he said, um, um, not being funny or anything, and you absolutely know a conversation's gonna go really downhill when a guy you've never met before starts off with not being funny or anything. You're like, okay. He said, um, um, if, if, I, if you were my sister, um, I wouldn't be really happy right now. And I said, all oh, right, why is that? And he said, well, you're out really late. And I said, yes. And he said, and the thing is, he said, racists are looking for women like you to attack you. And I said, right. And he said, so I wouldn't feel, um, I wouldn't feel it right if my mum or my sister or my wife were out at this time. And I said, well, look, I said, you know, yes, it's true. Racists are busy attacking women um, for a number of reasons, mostly racial reasons. Um, but I said, but how does, what changes if we just go and hide? 
Like what happens there if we just disappear into our homes? Now what's happened in some cases isn't a bid to keep women safe, okay? Some so-called community leaders, and they're always men and they're never elected, just to be very clear, have gone around giving messages to women, don't leave your home, stay at home. This is the kind of crap, for want of a better word, that women are having to listen to around the world in conflict-impacted countries. And here in the UK, the same thing is happening. And I think this is very, very dangerous and what it basically for me shows very clearly is that patriarchy is alive and well everywhere and extremism the first the first act of extremists everywhere in the world is to push women back in their homes and it happens in different ways it happens in a different you know you can categorize it in terms of hierarchies of abuse but that's what's going on and i just want to finish off on one quick point and that is that um the narrative you know, I'm as a Muslim woman, more than any other time in my life, every single thing about me is politicised, not because I'm politicising it, but because of the... Women's bodies have been politicised throughout history. There's, there's, you know, don't need to go into that right now. But I think we've got to a stage now where the otherness has reached another level. And this definitely is something that we do need to connect to uh, visibility and to vulnerability. And if we don't make those connections and we're doing a massive disservice, those of us who believe we're feminists, um, we're doing a massive disservice to feminism. And more importantly, if you are a feminist, then you need to be an intersectional feminist. And if you ain't one, then, you know, you ain't a feminist. Thank you. Thank you. Our next panelist is Kate Parker, who's a criminal barrister at Five Paper Buildings and the director of the School's Consent Project. The School's Consent Project is a charity that sends lawyers into schools to deliver workshops to students aged 11 to 18 on the legal definition of consent and key sexual and communication offenses, including sexting and revenge form. They touch on the age of consent, bystander intervention, appropriate responses to victim disclosure, court procedures as a victim or witness of a crime, and options in the event of an attack. In just two and a half years, they've spoken to over 6,000 young people across the country. Welcome, Kate. Um, so firstly, thank you very much, Alison, for the introduction. I realised as you were speaking that you have covered the first 30 seconds of my talk, so I'm not um, quite sure how I'm going to begin. But um, So I uh, founded and uh, I direct the school's consent project. Um, it's right that we go into schools, we speak to 11 to 18-year-olds about a whole range of issues relating to consent. Um, and it has got a lot of visibility quite recently because of the Panorama documentary that we were featured on. As a result, we're getting into a lot more schools across the country. 
Um, I feel that the work that I do with the Schools Consent Project is uniquely relevant to this talk and the theme of visibility and vulnerability because I find that young people are at once extremely vulnerable and increasingly extremely visible. And it always um, comes as a shock every time I go and speak in a new school and I am you know, messing around with my laptop, I can't get it online or I can't sort out my phone and inevitably a young person will say, oh, I'll sort it out for you and they'll do it in about 30 seconds. And it just reminds me that young people are fundamentally now digital natives. They all have smartphones. Those smartphones all have cameras. And that is why we're seeing a rise in things like sexting and things like revenge porn, because for young people increasingly, it's a natural way to test boundaries, to communicate with one another, and to kind of flex their sexual muscles. Um, and it's increasingly a concern of teachers and of schools and they don't know what to do they don't know what their policing rights are if i can call it that um they don't know how to um stop that kind of content floating around and how to safeguard their young people and that is really where we come in what i've noticed increasingly in the work we do with young people is that there is a real gender double standard and further than that there is this odd causative link between any female agency and liability and what I mean by that is this, a discussion with young people will normally go this way. If we're talking about what a victim is wearing um, and they see an image of a, of a victim in a, in a tiny dress or a tiny skirt or whatever, the unanimous response is, well, I mean, look at her, she's dressed that way, right? And I see a similar response from them when we talk about, you know, there's a slide uh, in some of our uh, workshop variants on sex work. And I have had a girl turn to me and completely po-face. We had a slide that said something like, um, sex workers can't be raped, true or false. And one of the girls turned around to me and said, well, I mean, if sex workers don't respect themselves, how can they expect anyone else to respect them? And everyone was sitting there going, yeah, yeah, good point, good point. So there's this really worrying um, narrative that um, I am seeing when I go into classrooms. This is going to sound like the hard sell now, but I do feel that after an hour of our workshop, we are starting to see those narratives change and there are some really lovely kind of eye-opening moments in our workshops where I feel as though um, there's a re real kind of tangible attitude shift in the young people that we speak to. Um, I'm going to go through a few of our slides just to give you all a flavour actually of, of what we do and what we talk to the young people about. So uh, start with the obvious, start with the legal definition of consent. A person consents if he or she agrees by choice and has the freedom and capacity to make that choice. And we explain exactly what freedom and capacity means in any given circumstance. Age of consent, they all unanimously think it's 16. That's like the blanket age. It's a bit more nuanced than that. There's different rules and different offences. If, for example, one party is in a position of trust when the other party is um, over 16, so for example, a 17-year-old and a teacher, and also the law is obviously a lot more punitive when one or, one or both parties are under 13. Right, so I've just kind of um, picked out a selection of some of the exercises that we use to try and drive home our message. And our ethos at the SCP is not, we're a bunch of lawyers that go in and talk about this stuff, we're just going to read them the legislation in kind of black and white text because that benefits no one. What we try and do is have a series of exercises so that they arrive at the importance of concepts like consent. This is one of, one of the ways we do it. We divide the room up into um, green, amber, and red. I literally forgot my traffic light colours there. Green, amber, and red. If it's a young group, I'll get them all up on their feet and they'll, they'll run around. If it's an older group, I'll do it by way of a show of hands. And I read them a series of statements. So they're things like, you're on your way to work and a builder wolf whistles you, or 
a boss makes a comment about your clothing or um, you're at a house party, you're playing spin the bottle, the bottle lies between you and someone that you really don't want to kiss. What are you doing that's in those circumstances? Green is, I'm totally comfortable with that. That's not an issue for me. Amber is, oh, I feel a bit uncomfortable. Red is, not having any of it, feel extremely uncomfortable. And whenever I read out a statement, I say, right, go and stand according to, to how you feel. And as you can imagine, the class completely splits and groups of friends, best mates who are, you know, next to each other for a whole workshop before this point will go to different areas of the room. And the point is a very simple one. You can't predict the response of someone in your year group, in your class, who might be your best mate. How, therefore, without a conversation about consent, can you know how someone is going to react when you might not know them so well, and it's a sexual context, and there might be, you know, drink, drugs, whatever, delete is appropriate, involved as well. That's why it's so important that we have these conversations about consent in whatever way that we can. Right, we then actually have a conversation with them about kind of the logistics of having a conversation like this. In the earlier workshops, we didn't have this slide, this slide and the feedback I got was, okay, miss, all well and good, you know, consent, fine, it's very clunky, it's very legal. Being honest, no young person is actually going to use that term when they're about to have sex with another person, which is fair enough. So we um, discuss with them ways in which they can raise it that might, not, that might feel less obvious and clunky and awkward and, and other ways they can kind of approach the topic. We look at bystander intervention. Uh, this is one of the scenarios we use. So at a house party, your friend Sasha drinks a lot and passes out on a sofa. Later that night, you see a boy sit next to her and put his hand up her skirt. Sasha is still unconscious. What do you do? And then just those kind of variables um, and kind of conversation triggers. The boys have boyfriend. Does that change anything? Instead of a boy, a girl puts her hand up Sasha's skirt. You know Sasha's had relationships with girls before. Your friends tell you that you're overreacting and not to do anything. The boy is known to be violent and could cause you trouble. You don't know Sasha. You weren't at the party. The next day you overhear a group of students joking about how drunk Sasha was. One boy says she's hot though. I'd have shagged her even in that state and the group laughs. Um, we also look at uh, appropriate responses to victim disclosure. Um, why might these various examples, depressingly all of which were taken from the CPS rape myths section of their website as things that are commonly said to victims when they first disclose, why might they be inappropriate and what might be a more appropriate response to have to someone? Consent and law, we try and introduce a few icebreakers at the start so they don't all completely uh, fall asleep. Um, one of my favourite games is this. So on click, two women appear on the left-hand side of the screen. I say, who do you think is more likely to be sexually assaulted? Without hesitation, they will all say the girl in the sexy red dress. We then say, okay, well, out of the two boys, who's more likely to be sexually assaulted? And as you can imagine, the response is a lot more muted. And it's really to flag up that gender double standard that we see skin, we see flesh and exposure in women. And it's that link to, oh, well, she's asking for it, you know, liability, which we don't um, attribute to men in the same way. I also tell them that statistically, um, people are more likely to be sexually assaulted and raped in their home environment and by someone that they know. So there is no real-time correlation statistically between what you're wearing, being glammed up on a night out, and sexual assault. This is an interesting one. This, this is a slide we introduced only in recent months because we felt that a lot of the young boys we spoke to felt that a false rape allegation was very much an equal and opposite threat to rape. Um, and I was getting a lot of... Uh, 
kind of palpable distress from them that, you know, what happens if they are falsely accused, which I found really interesting because um, in my work with kind of criminal law and around the school's consent project, you just don't get the same narratives and same response when, you know, someone tells you they've been mugged or they have been assaulted in, in or any other kind of manifestation of a criminal offence. The right pie chart, by the way, and we ask them to guess, is the one on the top left-hand side. Um, so hopefully that um, answers their queries to some extent about um, their concerns. What's the maximum sentence for rape? Again, just a quick icebreaker with them. Oddly, they all think it's five to ten years. I'm not sure where they got, they've got that from. Um, when we say it's life, it's quite an easy eye-opening moment. And when we say, can anyone think of another offence that has the same maximum sentence? And the answer is murder, which someone will normally come up with. It is a nice way for them to see, at least in principle, how the criminal justice system treats uh, serious sexual offences. Sexting, uh, as I said, big issue for schools at the moment. We start by talking the young people through the actual wording of the legislation. What they do here is they nod along and they're like, yeah, bored, we get it, we know. Um, they don't yet know because we then play the paper game, which is again one of my favourite. And I just walk up to someone in the front row, I hand them a sheet of April paper and I say, um, uh, rip this in two, I'm going to give you 30 seconds, rip it in two hand it to the two people either side of you. You guys, once you have it, rip it in two. Let's see how far it around the classroom it can get in 30 seconds. After 30 seconds, stop, hands up. Who, put your hands up if you've either touched a piece of paper or if you have it in front of you. Um, and half the class's hands go whizzing up. And it's a really nice way for them to appreciate, because I'll then say, look, if this was an indecent image of someone under 18, you could all fall foul of sexting law here. It's that punitive. And it's a really nice way for them to appreciate just how um, quickly criminal liability spreads under this law, basically. And then there's a really funny moment where half the class kind of feverishly get out their smartphones under the table and start deleting things, which is always quite funny to see. Um, sexual assault legislation, we also talk them through. We also talk them through rape legislation as well. Uh, and then we're not, with older groups, we'll touch on things like revenge porn. I've just been told I've got one minute left, so just to conclude, um, I know we've talked a bit this evening already about um, sexual harassment and assault in an educational setting, both here and in Tiffany's talk, and I'm personally really interested in how that manifests itself in a professional environment. Um, I'd like to shout out to the Behind the Gown group, who are anonymously sitting in the audience this evening, who represent women at the bar who have experienced sexual harassment and assault. It's a hyper-visible profession. I personally believe that that is going to be the next industry that has the spotlight shone on it because there is an absolute absence of human resources structures at the bar. You either escalate things to the top or you sit down and be quiet. Um, and that is something that I'll be interested in discussing later this evening. So thank you. So our last panelist, Laura Thompson, is a PhD candidate at the Department of Sociology at City University of London. Her thesis examines sexual harassment over straight online dating platforms. To do this, she integrates analysis of screen grabbed messages posted on social media with interviews with women about their experiences of online dating. The research explores the emerging role of new media in dating abuse and in perpetuating harmful gender and sexual norms. She characterizes these phenomena as forms of violence against women in response to a changing heterosexual landscape. She's also a regular media commentator on online harassment of women, including issues such as cyber flashing and doxing. Welcome, Laura.
Can you want to use it? Um, yes, thanks for having me here tonight. Uh, so this theme of vulnerability and visibility um, is something I've been thinking about a lot over the past few years as I've been doing this PhD, um, because one of the unfortunate things about looking at online harassment is become really aware of, thank you, I'm very short and now you can hear me a bit better. Um, yes, so one of the things is I've become quite hyper aware of online harassment and particularly how feminist women speaking out against sexual harassment can become targets. So it's kind of a personal and an academic thing uh, for me. But today I want to um, focus on an Instagram account called Quiet Felipe. Um, this is where I got a lot of my data from. It's um, where women are submitting screenshots of harassing and abusive messages that they've received over dating apps. Um, so by Felipe, it was set up by this woman, Alexandra Twetton, a woman in her 20s from the USA. Um, so she crowdsources this, these screenshots um, of the harassing messages sent over things like Tinder and Bumble and OkCupid. Um, and with the kind of stated aim on the Instagram account of calling out dudes who turn hostile when rejected or ignored. Uh, and this, this Instagram has been running since late 2014, just around the time I started my project conveniently. Um, it's still active, it currently has over 400,000 followers. And it's kind of morphed into this, well, perhaps we'd call it a multi-platform feminist brand. Uh, it's something of a, an online phenomenon. Um, Tweetin's got a website, there's a podcast. Uh, she runs online dating themed comedy shows uh, and events in Los Angeles. And this phrase by Felipe has become part of this kind of online feminist vocabulary to kind of name and denounce sexism and call out creeps, Tinder creeps. Um, and many of the conversations that are submitted to the account, they end with a woman texting back, uh, you know, by Felipe and often a peace out kind of fingers emoji or, or hand waving emoji. Um, if you're wondering what the significance of this phrase is by Felipe, um, I'll quote the Urban Dictionary definition, which is, um, when a male says he's leaving and you could really give two shits that they are, the name then becomes Felipe, a random dude that nobody is sad to see go. Uh, and this, it apparently it's inspired by a quote from a 90s movie called Friday, where a female character was dismissed um, by others with, by Felicia. So I thought I'd just give you a flavor of some of the online conversations that women are submitting to this account. Um, I should know, I'm very desensitized to this kind of uh, content now. I've, seen hundreds and hundreds of posts, um, but you may not be. So just to let you know, there's going to be some pretty hateful speech in here, um, sexist speech, and racist speech, um, and well, some bad language. Uh, so yes, so this is kind of typical. We've got Jeff here, um, interesting pickup line that they've started with, when should I fuck your face? Never. How about that pussy though? Still a no and shut the fuck up, you fat bitch. And um, got another one here. I have, do you know what, these are actually the more tame examples. I've decided not to go for full on shock factor tonight. This one, hey there, wanna hook up? A couple of weeks later, wanna hook up? And hey bitch, you speak when I talk to you, understand? And uh, by Felipe here is captioned this with hashtag male entitlement and hashtag YFelipe. So. 
as revolting, as disturbing as some of these messages are, um, you can also kind of laugh at them, right? Because they're, they're so over the top, they're so angry, they're so ridiculous. And one of Wai Felipe's aims, a tweet says, is she wants to make fun of these idiots. She wants to take them down. Um, you know, humour comes through very prominently through the hashtags, the captions given to the posts, um, and also many of the women's responses, many of which can be very sarcastic or withering. Um, and what I think this is what has made Wai Felipe so popular, this sort of, I don't know if we'd call it a game, or this dynamic of creep shaming. Um, the media coverage about by Felipe has almost universally celebrated it um, as a hilarious new way of getting back at Tinder creeps, of turning the tables on online harassers, and basically getting revenge. <laughs> but linking this to visibility, what I've noticed here is that this is a, this is a very particular type of feminism, um, perhaps, that's, that's visible here. And keep in mind this is social media, I mean obviously we all perform on social media, um, this is a very specific performance here that's on by Felipe, um, and it's one of kind of this outspoken, you know, take no prisoners, sassy, savvy, uh, bold feminist. But she's also very white, and she's also very young. Um, and this is the thing, this is kind of the critiques I suppose I want to make about by Felipe, um, in that it's privileging kind of the visibility of a certain type of feminism or a certain type of women over others. Um, it's also it's a very youthful phenomenon, um, and this might come as part of the territory where it's young women using social media more, but it's not only young women who online date, it's not only young women who receive online harassment. <coughs> of course, some women are more able than others to gain public support and positive attention on social media. And this has a lot to do with social factors that can be outside of people's control. Now, I've noticed one thing is that Bye Felipe has got far more media coverage than similar projects which uh, have focused on the racism and racialized sexism that women of color experience on dating apps. This is taken from a Tumblr called Creepy White Guys. Uh, this Tumblr actually uh, disappeared. It seems it was deleted because it kept being reported to the blog platform. I've never seen any media articles about it. Um, you know, the, the woman behind or women behind it have never had any kind of publicity or the chances or opportunities that Alexandra Twetton has had to, um, you know, turn their project uh, into kind of a commercial entity, basically. Um, and by Felipe itself, there's actually there's very, very few posts which highlight and call out racism on dating apps. And someone pointed out to me um, a couple of conferences ago that perhaps even the very choice of the Latino name Felipe is kind of this male equivalent to the by Felicia quote itself as problematic racist associations, as it conjures up kind of stereotypes of Latin men in particular as being chauvinistic and sexually predatory. So this is, I suppose, one of the problems I have with by Felipe. Um, another thing that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable is some of this content. So another part of this, this by Felipe, this boldness, this fighting back, women fighting back, taking on the creeps. Um, a lot of that, there's a lot of posts about how we, women should respond to certain messages, uh, such as unsolicited pictures of penises, um, which is quite a common occurrence. And the kind of favoured strategies espoused on by Felipe um, seems to be to counter men's aggression with more aggression. And you know, there's these all these fantasies of violence against men, 
uh, penis mutilation is a recurring theme. Uh, and so there's very, this, along with all the jokes and the laughing and the making fun of idiots, uh, there's a very real undercurrent of anger, which I suppose is understandable, and I can understand the sentiment and that communicating anger and rage back at aggressors is surely quite cathartic. Um, but I want to link this now to vulnerability and point out that there can be consequences to calling out and to taking back, taking on the harassers. And this is where I think problems again become more apparent. Because unfortunately, in many of the messages posted on by Felipe, where women respond back angrily at harassers, um, I observe there's a sort of spiraling conflict uh, and it basically just escalates. And I've spoken to women who have received pictures of erections next to a knife and even, you know, threats of harm when they've talked back and tried to take on someone who was abusing them online. Uh, there's a very real retaliation, danger of retaliation when taking on a harass, someone who's being harassing or abusing you. Uh, and I think that we should be hesitant to recommend to women that they should be, have to put themselves in a, in a firing line, potentially somehow prove themselves as being you know, feminist, tough, bold, sassy. Um, what I'm also concerned about, I suppose, with the, the By Felipe project is that in trying to raise awareness about the reality of online dating for women, it might almost inadvertently normalise sexual harassment in a way. Uh, sedimenting, this, sedimenting this idea that this is just what online dating is like for women, that it's somehow inescapable. It's becoming common knowledge, in a way, that dating apps are a minefield for women looking to meet men. They're a hotbed of creeps and weirdos. Um, the women I spoke to in my interviews were aware of all these sentiments. They often endorse them. They, they express a sense of despair at ever meeting a decent man. Um, and I'm running out of time, so I'm not sure I'm going to get to go through all this. But I just wanted to basically talk a little bit about how Tinder has been responding to this because I think it's interesting the way that Tinder has been picking up um, this kind of conversation on social media. Um, a few years ago, they were basically trying to, I would say, bury their heads in the sand about the issue, uh, saying that men you know, are not inherently creepy or bad, they just genuinely don't know what to say. I think that corrects over time. I think they're, they're learning. Um, I think we can all agree that's a fairly patronising assessment. Um, but just last month, actually, Tinder decided that it is going to do something about the problems on its platform and rolled out a new advertising campaign called the Men Improvement Initiative. Uh, and they've launched a feature called Reactions that are phone screen size animations that only women can send to men. Uh, this includes a martini throwing animation and an eye rolling one. Um, and the reason given in a blog post um, is that they created Tinder reactions so that our users can give instant feedback, both positive as well as constructive, to those who need it most. If he's acting douchey, it's time to take the initiative. So whilst it might sound funny, you know, sassy, it's on trend, I suppose, with um, the, the way that by Felipe has been talking about the issue. Um, but what I'm concerned about is this idea that women are somehow responsible for reforming men who can't help themselves but sexually harass. Why do we have to make it up to women to pick the exact right emoji or animation to provide constructive feedback from men who just don't know how to online date? Um, I don't think that's a very good idea. Personally, I'd like to throw a martini in the face of whoever suggested that one. <laughs>
open this up amongst the panel for a couple of minutes and to get the ball rolling. Um, I'm curious why the Me Too campaign has had has had such an impact. Why now? Why does exposure work sometimes and not others? And I'm thinking specifically about all the allegations around Trump that didn't seem to get any of the same traction. Why do you think now? Well, again, I'd say that with Trump, these allegations against him have been going on for decades. And again, um, I think perhaps there's, perhaps in the States in particular, um, there is a more, there's more women who've come together and decided that enough is enough. Um, I still, like I said earlier on, I don't think we've reached, a, we're not at the stage of a movement. We are definitely still at the stage of a moment. Um, you know, with Trump, 53% of white women voted for Trump. Let's not forget that fact, okay? We can never forget that fact because that's part of the problem. So uh, um, a man, all the evidence is mounted against this man in terms of his sexual harassment, groping of women, sexual abuse, all the rest of it. And still, a, a you know, big majority of women from a particular majority group voted for him. Um, so I don't think um, this has been a light bulb moment in the way that perhaps we've been told that it is. But I think what's happened perhaps in some cases is that women around the world, those intersectional feminists, those grassroots campaigners, those women have kind of started connecting the dots and started thinking, well, wait a minute, this isn't just, um, this isn't just happening in one space or one place, it's happening in multiple places. Um, and I think social media has played a big role in this because what it's basically done has it's given a platform to those women who have been invisible um, because the media doesn't give them visibility, doesn't give them the platform to speak. And I think, you know, that has definitely played a role in this. But I still feel that we're in the very, very early stages of this. And this could disappear, this moment could disappear quite quickly. As quickly as it's arrived, it could disappear. Unless we put some proper work into this and uh, we start connecting all the dots here in our own country. I mean, this is essentially, I mean, I think most people in this room would agree with this. We, this is about power and patriarchy. That's what this is about. And uh, this is not going to go anywhere. Power and patriarchy hasn't disappeared since the world's been turning. It's not about to disappear. In fact, um, the narratives around women and the policing of women is increasing everywhere as more and more right-wing uh, politics come into play. So actually, we're, we're facing bigger battles and more important battles than perhaps we have for a long time. And also, I think um, the backlash against women is extraordinary. Um, you talked about some of the young um, you know, students that you, you speak to. I remember going into a school in, in, um, South, in uh, South London on the day of the US election last year. Um, I was there to uh, run a session about racism and bigotry. And I'll never forget this. A, a, a young, I said to, a, to the class, can you tell me what's significant about today? It was the day of the US election. Everybody told me that was what was significant about today. And I said, okay, what do we think is going to happen? And a young boy in the class said, oh, Miss Miss, um, she's rubbish. I said, who? He said, Hillary, she's rubbish. I said, why is she rubbish? He said, I just don't think she's going to be able to do anything. She's a woman. So we just actually came out with it. And a few of the girls in the class agreed with him. Um, I think this is not as clear cut as we, we'd like to think. It's not, it's not um, as um, 
the solidarity between women in particular is not there. It's very polarised. This campaign is very polarising. As much as it has brought women together in some cases, it's really... Um, that I think that unity has disappeared, has disappeared very fast. And that's something we need to be aware of as well. Um, this um, this march that we had at the beginning of the year, what was it called again? Women's March. Women's March. Okay, so at one point in London, uh, there were tweets going around from the organisers welcoming UKIP to this mm. platform. So they were like, oh, let's bring everyone. It's like, well, no, this is the thing, right? You cannot bring everyone. Yeah, if you're going to have politics and you're going to have intersectional feminism, you cannot bring everyone. Let's stop this farce. And I think this is the main thing that we... Um, those of us who are consciously aware and politically aware, this is a narrative that we have to be so aware of and that we have to stop in its tracks, okay? Because uh, feminism has been co-opted throughout history to destroy women's lives, to launch wars, to police women's bodies, to police their <coughs> contraception, to police their rights, all, everything. It's been going on forever and a day. And if we, if we think for a teeny tiny second that that's going to change, then we're really deluding ourselves. And the final point I was going to finish up on is as someone who's worked, worked in the AIDS sector for a long time, what I find really fascinating and deeply nauseating at the same time is this whole narrative now about feminist aid. What the hell is feminist aid? It's basically repackaging, um, repackaging things to make them sound nicer, to make them sound um, a bit more fluffy and a bit more woman friendly, right? That's where we're at. Um, it's just like racism. Racism has been repackaged. No longer called Nazis, are called the alt right. Mm. So this is the, these two, the feminist movement and what was, or the lack of feminist movement and racism and the type of racism that we're seeing and the way it's being repackaged goes hand in hand. And I think that as what we need to do is connect all these dots. If we connect them and we start politically connecting them, then we are on the road to creating a, a movement that will be long term and that will be real and that will be that will be radical right now i think what's going on is superficial papering of the cracks and that's not going to fix anything it never has and it never will do any of you want to respond to to Shaista or to respond to anything that anybody has said amongst can I just one, add one more thing last year we had lots of newspaper magazine magazines and newspaper headlines Marine Le Pen is a feminist mm. hello just gonna stop there right <laughs> yeah <laughs> Not maybe we'll open it up to the audience at this point. We're gonna have a microphone that travels. That one all the way in the back.
So my question is whether that whole article about her statement itself is basically anti-feminist, or whether it is right to make that distinction between you know very serious rape allegations or just saying that like, women being a woman protecting man at work and then saying this So yeah. So just to be clear, are you saying that the movement conflates the two? Yes. I, I think that's right. I think the Me Too campaign is problematic in a number of ways, one of which um, that's true for me is that it puts the performative labour burden on women and victims as opposed to perpetrators, um, which I don't think is right. Um, but I also feel that way Can you speak into the microphone? Yeah, sure. I also feel that way about the campaign. I've noticed in my, um, just in my personal social circle of friends, those who I know who have been extremely seriously sexual assaulted have been notably absent and silent in this campaign and that is not to um, diminish the experiences of those who want to participate in the campaign it's to recognize that there is a gradation of um, when we talk about sexual offenses and serious sexual offenses and what I would hate is for those women to feel as though um, they are overlooked, that they're silenced, because they don't feel like they want to take part in this incredibly public and incredibly visible campaign um, that, as I, as I started by saying, is performative, and it requires that performative burden on those, those women and those people. Um, so yes, I do, I, I agree with that statement, personally. Oh, well, we'll, we'll do more than one answer, and then have fun. Can we, we'll, we'll first let Tiffany respond and then... Oh, I will <laughs> I'll be quick, I promise. Um, I, I, don't, I don't disagree. I think, I, think it's a, I think it's a tricky question because if we're talking about modes and relations of power, then to start trying to compare and have a metrics of vulnerability and assault one of how do we do that and and I think I, I, I think that in terms of thinking it's difficult because what I appreciate about the visibility is it allows us to have either different conversations or the same conversations but in different spheres like this now. I noticed that with our work that we've gone from saying this is a problem to then being able to start to talk about the complexity and that can change the kinds of conversations away from perhaps personal experiences but actually what are the structures and mechanisms that are working in terms of patriarchy, in terms of racism, in terms of, of, of notions of colonialism, like it's to actually start thinking about what is going on here. And I wonder, and, and, but I think that the quick win for the media is to say, oh, it, I won't reiterate the response, but I think it's productive in other ways potentially. I mean, I think there's, in, in following up from what you said, that there's a fragility to a hashtag to a moment to a and and absolutely the kinds of industries that are, are very powerful industries we're not having these conversations about cleaning staff we're not having a me too conversation about rohingya in burma 
These are particular conversations in quite privileged industries often. So that questioning that solidarity, it is very white, very Western focused in its, in its and I think these are the kind of conversations we have to have as a, as a feminist movement. So I just wanted to um, just quickly add that I totally agree with you, Tiffany. I mean, I don't, I think women aren't conflating these issues. Women, women know that, you know, he brushed my knee or whatever that allegation was and he raped me are two very different things. I don't know any women on this planet who would ever conflate the two. I think that it's, an, it's, a, it's a media constructive na na constructed narrative that is all about conflation. Um, and then that then opens a door up to, oh, you know, are you allowed to flirt with women anymore mm. and all that type of stupidity? Um, so I don't think women are doing it. That's, I, I, I really don't. And I totally agree with you in terms of um, women shouldn't have to share their experiences of their trauma and the crimes that have happened and taken place against their bodies. They shouldn't have to do any of those things unless they wish mm. to do them. Um, also, in relation to the Me Too campaign, a couple of weeks ago, there was a whole thing, wasn't there, on Twitter where women, women um, boycotted Twitter. Mm. For a day, I can't remember what the hashtag was now, but it was very interesting because a lot of women of colour were like, well, we're silenced every day. When we're, you know, trans women, gay women, disabled women, they were like, look, no one, no one listens to anything we say any, any day of the week. Why are we going to make ourselves invisible? It was a very, very powerful thing. And so, in, so a lot of white women disappeared off Twitter and other women as well. And a lot of women of colour were amplified, their voices were amplified. But I think what that um, moment showed is that actually you can, you, you, we need to have um, a whole range of tools and we as women can decide which one we want to pick and which one we don't want to pick. And I don't think that's a problem. Um, I think all of those things can work together and I don't think it has to be one or the other either. Open it up for more questions. Um, in basically every 
three well-minded people. You don't have to look at Cosmo and just how the people in there have and his sex position and, his, and that and the other. Um, and we just really, really need to break apart this idea that women somehow need to be doing all the emotional labor and all of the relationship maintenance and making sure that men respond in appropriate ways. Um, and I don't really know how to do that other than raising boys and men to be, perhaps to take more of that responsibility and to just never really want to be like the boys with the boys. <laughs> I think we need to break that apart. So it's going to be a long project. Um, consent education, but then I was always going to say that. Um, I uh, personally think that um, the hashtag how will I change, which um, sprung up on Twitter in response to hashtag me too, um, has been a, a positive step forward in the right direction. That, as I understand, is a campaign spearheaded by men to be like, look, how am I complicit in this? What can I do to no longer be complicit? Whether that is um, it, calling out something that I see that looks uncomfortable, whether it's if I know I'm sexually aggressive and I've had too many drinks and not having that many drinks or whatever it might be. And it's nice to see a kind of positive masculine response to um, a very vocal, performative female campaign. And it seems to me to be shifting the focus onto what the perpetrators might like to do to change their behaviour rather than the victim. Mm. Um, I think we've just started our work Really, I do. Um, I think the main thing we have to do is build an intersectional feminist movement. It has to be grassroots, it has to be grounded in realities. And I think the other thing that has to happen is women from the majority group who have masses of privilege compared to other women need to listen, they need to take a step back and they need to follow. Too many of those women are used to leading, and I understand that perhaps they'd like to continue leading, but what they have to actually do is take a step back and they have to start amplifying the voices of those marginalised women. That is the only way that we are going to build a real movement, as I keep banging on and on about it. And the other thing is we need to look at uh, countries like Pakistan, which is where my heritage is from, and see what those women are doing in countries and contexts where they face extreme violence every day what kind of things are they doing how are they amplifying women's voices how are they keeping women safe uh, what's happening in latin america you know we, 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 we we're never going to have all the solutions ourselves we need to learn from each other and that only happens and i know i sound a bit like oprah winfrey here right but honestly it can only happen if a we humble ourselves and b we start listening and C, we start acting. So these uh, hashtag moments and all of this online activity, great, brilliant, but we need offline action. And um, you know, I'm sitting, I'm sitting next to a criminal barrister here who's doing brilliant work. We have the law, let's use the law, uh, let's push the law to hold these individuals to account. Most of them are men, but women um, are the custodians of patriarchy as well, as we know, right? And you know, it's it's not just it's, this is not a man versus woman, women or women versus man. This is about patriarchy, and it impacts both men and women. And it's about an educational process. But to be honest, Rome is burning, right? We haven't got time to go around educating people. I've got no time to go around educating people to tell them I'm a human being and my dignity matters. Because without you know sounding melodramatic, I'm too busy trying to survive. I'm too busy trying to make sure I'm not going to get attacked when I'm on my way home. I know other women in this room who are hyper-visible as well, perhaps feel the same way. So we don't have time for this touchy-feely business, right? What we have to do is get really with it 
And we have to start having very uncomfortable conversations with ourselves as women and with our peers. Um, and particularly the white women in the room who see themselves as allies, you need to start doing the heavy lifting. All right? This heavy lifting... needs to come from you. I'm going to finish on this one final point. A couple of weeks ago, the Daily Telegraph newspaper and the Daily Mail had the audacity to put a young British woman of Nigerian descent on the front page of their disgraceful publications. Why? Because she's at Cambridge University and she's working to decolonize the education, the English curriculum. The thing is, this decolonization program uh, is most of the support is coming from white students, but they decided to go and put up a young, hyper-visible black woman on the front page to instigate hate and trolling against her, right? What happened was a whole load of people on Twitter took to Twitter, called them out, including myself. I played my role. I'm not saying I was responsible for this, but I put a tweet out early in the morning asking Cambridge University, what will you be doing to protect your student and will you be issuing a statement? Eventually, they did issue a statement. And like I said, it wasn't all down to me. I played my part. Now, my point here is these are the disgraceful, shameful tactics that are being used to demonize hyper-visible women and to put them at heart in harm, in, in, you know, put them at risk, put their lives at risk. It's down to every feminist, male, female, however you define yourself, to stand up and to understand this is happening. And the reason why I talk about the heavy lifting is because if you're a feminist, you need to understand that some women are going to get attacked in terms of right-wing media and everything else and physical violence ahead of other women. And we, if we're, going, if we're serious about building a movement, we need to build a strategy which enables us to, each of us to play our role and understand who goes to the front, who stays in the middle and who stays at the back. And just because you're at the back doesn't mean you're not seen or heard. It means the people at the front need to amplify you in a different way. And these are the strategies that we need to build. And this again can only happen I'm going to say it one more time, if we build an intersectional feminist movement, if we don't build one, then it's just it's not going to happen. And it's going to be like a sandcastle that just crumbles and falls. Right. So it's really it's, this is a moment now for us to decide what we want to do. No one's going to come and tell us what to do. No one's going to come and save us. We have to figure this out ourselves. Just as these are shocking to you, 
know, just, um, just as they are for women of colour. My concern about the kind of conversations that we're having and the kind of ways that it's being presented is that just as with intersection, intersectionality was originally, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was originally uh, created uh, uh, by a black woman, which is looking at intersectional oppressions, not intersectional identities. So too is E2, so too has E2 been co opted and shaped into something completely different. Again, by white women, by feminists, who obviously mean well, but at the same time are appropriating the ideas and understandings of this concept and then running with them and leaving those more marginalized groups behind. So, how do we stop that from continuing? It's, a, it's a, a really crucial and difficult question. Um, in terms of, in this, I mean, I speak from my perspective as a, a white cis woman, that it very much and it's echoing your comments that the education starts and the emphasis starts and the accountability starts with ourselves, with myself, in terms of understanding these conversations are being had online. There is this information and this availability and this dialogue. Trans women, trans women of colour are having these conversations and it's not being echoed and not being discussed and not being marginalised because of trans exclusion, because of transphobia. And I've seen the calling out at times of, of what you're talking about with, with regards to the, the exclusion of particular groups, this notion of what it means to be a woman and the violence of that. And in our movements, that always has to be front and centre. So I start with ourselves and thinking about the work that we do and knowing that, you know, a much higher percentage of trans women will experience staff sexual misconduct, for example. But that gets absolutely erased when I use the figures one in six female postgraduates. Because it's not, it's 33% of, of trans women will experience, and this is US data, um, there's no data on the basis of race, absolutely from the US at all. So, so first of all, as researchers, and we're researchers in this room, we need to be thinking intersectionally in, in the ways in which we do this work, both activism, but also the, how we change social policy. Because often social policy is data-driven, it is information-driven, so how do we make sure that this work that we do is intersectional? Now, that's an academic point of view, but that's the crossover of how do we support survivor um, and service organisations. And one of my beefs is, is that that you know, university, so I'm speaking in the context of the university, outsources its support mechanisms to places like Rape Crisis, to the Survivor Network, to LGBTQ Hotline. And I asked my university, the University of Cambridge, given that you put these numbers on your website, how much do you pay them for their services? And the look I got was, well, if they come and give a talk, we give them some money. It's like, okay, but you, you are absolutely not supporting your, your, the, the students within your institution. I asked a, a trans friend of mine, who would you report sexual misconduct to 
in the institution and she says, every day I experience violence in this institution. I would never tell anyone about my experiences. And that, I think, is crucial to understand the relationship between institutions and violence. And what do we need to do to ensure that, first of all, we need to fix that problem, but in the meantime, how do we support trans women, women of colour, who being in this institution is a violent and harassing place? in terms of support mechanisms outside of that. Not everyone will report, not everyone will go to the police. We need to give people options. So there's lots of things that we need to do, but it starts absolutely with, with ourselves. And I really thank you for, for raising that. Can I just add one point yes. to that then? Um, what would really be good is more logistics of some of these platforms that these campaigns are run on. So I found, I think Twitter is quite a problematic space just in the way it operates because, and this is not advanced to apologise the kind of damaging and detrimental effect that white Western feminists had on this movement, but Twitter amplifies the most prominent voices. That is what comes up on your newsfeed. It is how often you are retweeted and, and it's that that gives you your microphone and it's therefore necessarily an environment that doesn't benefit more marginalised voices because it just promotes the mainstream. And that is why Alyssa Milano is credited with the Me Too mm. movement and not black women who started it 10 years ago. Um, and, and that is why I think it has been co-opted so easily. Now, that's, that is not to say that there is not more that we as humans and individuals can be doing to better that movement and make it more inclusive. But I also think there are problems with the logistics of a lot of these platforms and the way they contribute to that marginalisation. I think we have time for one more question right there in the fuzzy white sweater. <laughs> Really resonated with me to make it a bit anecdotal with the 
the compulsory consent workshops <coughs> last year, some of the um, some of the guys who came along um, would never have gone to it if it hadn't been compulsory, um, but were actually really shocked by what they learned and, and absolutely and totally saw um, why they needed to be compulsory and actually some of them now help run those workshops. So I guess my question is, um, is it time that we call on universities and schools, I guess, um, to make these workshops <laughs> yeah. um, yes, I wholeheartedly agree that that's important. Um, my personal view is that, and this is not to say that consent workshops at universities aren't useful, they are, but the horse is kind of bolted when you need to have a consent workshop at 19 and onwards. Um, so I definitely think that it is something that schools should be looking into. It is gobsmackingly not... Um, proposed as a compulsory part of statutory SRE. We have done well to make SRE become statutory, but at the moment, consent module is opt-in only, hilariously, because I consider that to be kind of the foundation of any um, healthy sex education. So um, yes, I think having those workshops um, compulsory in all educational environments can only be ultimately a good thing. Can I just make, I, I wanted to ask a question. Just one second, we'll let Laura respond and then I'll shift to you. I actually, yeah, I think the idea of um, sex education in universities is a really good one because sometimes it seems like we focus a lot on young people and young people don't understand and they need to learn about consent and they're the ones who know nothing about relationships. But how much do adults, you know, how much do we all know about relationships? Exactly, we never time to stop learning. Um, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of adult men and women and people of all kinds um, that they can learn about how to be in mutually respectful relationships with people. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Um, I agree that you know these this needs to start much. It needs to start very young, but the learning needs to continue because um, just because you get to university, as we know, doesn't mean you've fixed up and you know what you're doing or what you should be doing, not to absolve anyone of responsibility for, you know, what they are doing. Um, and the same goes for the workplace as well, because as we've, as we've discussed several times, this is about power, structures of power, and you said you work in parliament, you know, very powerful place. We're just beginning to understand baseline what's going on. You know, the, the, the can of worms has only opened a little bit there, right? Um, so I think this is about, um, again, patriarchy and culture. It's about the culture that has been created through power and power, um, those who have power cling on to it for dear life. They never ever want to, you know, give it away. And this is why a lot of this, um, the discussions that are coming out are being belittled. Uh, women are being belittled now for talking about sexual harassment um, and all this conflation of, you know, touch my knee, rape me, all that business. That's about creating narratives that then allow uh, the belittling and the um, making women a, a, a figures of ridicule. That's what's going on. Um, I just wanted to wrap up on this point, um, which is that your presentation, which was really interesting, um, this thing about you know women expected to sort of laugh off what's going on, I think this is one of the most horrific things that has come out in the last two years. There's a lot of horrific things, right? But I do put this up there because I think what's going on is even so-called good people, because they've, they lack the courage to actually deal with what's going on, the response is to laugh. 
And if we laugh at Trump and we laugh at him and we laugh at her, and Trump is a caricature, so it's easy to laugh at Trump, for those who find him funny, I'm not one of them. But if we laugh, it basically means it absolves, of, absolves us of all personal responsibility. And it just makes us just shake it off. And that's what's going on. Um, so, you know, if we kind of just chuckle away at things, it kind of just means we can just close, go home, close the door, not think about things. And I think that needs to be challenged. And again, this is why um, these uh, women are sort of being ridiculed in, when they come out and speak about what's going on. And we need to put a stop to that immediately. You have a final comment. I just want to thank you for mentioning Latin America, uh, Brazilian, and uh, being studying feminist uh, activism online in Brazil. And uh, uh, it's funny because a lot of hashtags were going on in Brazil the last like four years, and there were new. One of them went worldwide, uh, but all are probably not as close as we to campaign. Uh, and also, these hashtags in Brazil they also went plus race and gender identity and everything, all the, you know, but this was happening before. And what I'm seeing now is that uh, a lot of women who are using hashtags, this came out, this came out from Twitter and from Facebook groups, very Jewish, very positive Jewish groups, and they are many. Um, and then what happened was that these groups, uh, they started to become WhatsApp groups with new people because a lot of people were being exposed. And then they were using emotions a lot, like to share very intimate, uh, like personal stories, and uh, but they're being closed and closed now. And uh, what I was like, I wanted to ask you, but I don't have time. But something to think about maybe is the use of cathartic emotions online, and how this uh, you know becomes something material or something that lasts in in cyberspaces. <coughs> you share your very personal stories, and it just goes. With the hashtag, the hashtag is lost, and it's a very like deep, you know, um, sharing, and it's just like lost. And how does it become something political, politically relevant, or not? Are you just like sharing stories? And it really can help emotionally, but it's a therapy. But maybe it's just you know, maybe it's something to think about if you use social media uh, in this cathartic yeah, I mean, I think emotional catharsis is obviously really, really important, um, and I think we do need to think about the best forums um, to do that in. But I suppose some of the problems I have with, with the hashtags and with the Me Too is, is I'm a bit concerned what if it becomes kind of a spectacle of women's sexual suffering, suffering and degradation. <coughs> that's, that's the thing that I sometimes think about. I mean, is this, this is a bit like NCIS, where it's always, you know, women being raped has become entertainment for, you know, crime fiction and things like this. How do we, how do we take these very personal things and very painful, difficult, traumatic things, and how do we make sure that they're not misused and just become basically the, the background noise um, of, yeah, violence and trauma and, and tune out because it's too much to deal with. Well, please join me in thanking our panelists. <laughs>